Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Welcome to the guests who've joined us today. Glad that you're with us today. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you that we can gather together today in worship. God, we ask and pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work among us today, recognizing that no good will come apart from this time, apart from your spirit. And so we ask and pray, God, that you would encourage our faith today, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would fill our hearts with awe at your son Jesus, who he is and what he has done, and that our response would be one of of joyful worship, that we would leave here determined to live our whole lives in service to your son Jesus. We ask these things and we pray it in his name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Okay, quick question. How many of you have ever been to a birthday party? (laughs) Raise your hand. Okay, good. Almost every hand. Some of you, unfortunately, have never been invited to a birthday party. I feel sorry for you. That's really sad. All right. Was there food at the party? Raise your hand. Yes, food at the party. How about were there any presents at the birthday party? Yes, there were presents at the birthday party. And was the party meant to be fun? (laughs) Notice I say meant to be fun because it doesn't always happen that way. But it was intended to be fun at least, right? Parties are supposed to be joyful. At parties, people gather together. There is food. There's activities. The gifts are given They're meant to be joyful occasions. That's the point. It's a celebration. There'd be something wrong if you showed up and everyone was just sort of ho-hum about it, sort of like, sort of like Eeyore. (laughs) Hello. Welcome to my party. Glad you're here. It'd just be weird. It'd It'd be sad. It would just be wrong if that's what happened. It's not supposed to be like that. The same thing is true of our gathering on Sunday to worship the Lord. Now, it's not that you can't come before God with a sad or a heavy heart. He welcomes that. He, he brings comfort to us in hardship. But the gathering of God's people is for worship. It is to be a celebration of God that is marked by joy. And God's not a stick in the mud. God wants your joy. He does. And he knows that the only way you can have your joy is in him. And so he does this really wonderful thing for us. He commands us to rejoice in him. We're to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness in salvation and in all of the ways that he has provided for us. Now, in the Old Testament, that happened primarily through the appointed feasts, his appointed feasts. And that included the weekly Sabbath. And these feasts were not meant to be bleak and boring, but joyful and God-honoring. And just like these Old Testament feasts, our gatherings on the Lord's day are meant to be times of joyous celebration for God's provision and God's salvation. The Lord's day is a day of worship. It's a day for prayer and praise to God, a day of feasting and fellowshipping in God's presence, a day of rest and refreshment and rejoicing in the Lord. 
And there's something wrong if we're ho-hum about worshiping God. So turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 today. And the message for us today is this, be altogether joyful in worship for God's provision and God's salvation in Christ. Be altogether joyful for God's provision and God's salvation in Christ. We're going to look at these three feasts today and how they're fulfilled in Christ. We'll apply them as we go along. And then I'm going to conclude with some applications for worship at the end. Now, there were three major pilgrim feasts in Israel each year, and they were to be celebrated in the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell. We see that phrase six times in our text today. That's unique to Deuteronomy. As they move into the promised land, God wants them to celebrate these three pilgrim feasts at the central sanctuary, which would eventually be in Jerusalem. And they were for everyone. But the men were required to come and to bring offerings. Now, as we go through these feasts, I'm going to talk about why they did it, how they did it, and how it points forward to Jesus. But overall, we're going to see it was a time of joyful worship and gratitude for, for God's provision and God's salvation. So let's dig in. First, we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. If you jump down to verse 16, you're going to see that, that these two are combined as, as, and thought of as one feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. One feast. And the application for us is to rejoice and be holy. We'll see this in verses 1 through 8. But look at verse 1. Observe the month of Abib. That's March, April. It later became known by the Babylonian name Nisan. And keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, then odds are that you're at least somewhat familiar with the Passover, the night that God rescued Israel from Egypt. He told them to sacrifice a lamb without blemish, to put its blood on the, the lintel and doorposts of their houses, Exodus 12, 5 and 7. And then when the Lord came to destroy the firstborn of Egypt, when he saw the blood, he said, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt, Exodus 12, 13. The blood of the lamb protected them from God's wrath. And in the future, that was how they were supposed to explain it to their kids. Exodus 12, 27. Parents, every Sunday is a discipleship opportunity for you with your kids. It's show and tell. Now, Passover was the 14th day of the month at twilight, Leviticus 23, 5, Exodus 12, 6, because that's when God brought them out. Verse 1. The next day, the 15th, began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 2, and you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. Again, these three feasts that we're looking at were pilgrim feasts. They were meant to go to the central sanctuary to observe them. He says in verses 5 and 6, you may not offer it in any of your towns. Verse 3, and you shall offer the Passover, oops, and you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For because you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, 
that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. That's the why. The Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread was to commemorate God's rescuing them from Egypt, and they were celebrating God's salvation. How did they do it? Look at verse 4. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. So, no leftovers and no leaven. Uh, the leftovers were supposed to be burned, Exodus 12.10. And leaven, which was like yeast, made the bread rise, but they didn't have time for that because they left in haste, verse 3. Again, they were to offer it in the evening at sunset, verse 6, the time they came out of Egypt. And the meat was supposed to be roasted, Exodus 12, verses 8 and 9, though here Moses just says to cook it. In the morning, they were supposed to go to their tents. Remember, they're, they're not at home. They're, they're in Jerusalem, so there's temporary lodgings for them. And then following the Passover, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted seven days. Now, one thing in common to all of the feasts is sacrifices and offerings, which Moses doesn't discuss here. For the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs without blemish, Numbers 28, 19 along with the grain offerings and a male goat as a sin offering to make atonement. Verse 8, on the seventh day, there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. And we learn that both the first and the seventh days of this feast were a Sabbath to the Lord, a day of rest and worship together as God's people, Leviticus 23, 7 and 8. Overall, this feast was symbolic. It was like a reenactment of what God did in Egypt, bringing them out to help them remember and celebrate God's salvation in rescuing them from Egypt. How does it point to Jesus? Colossians 2, 16 and 17 tells us that the feasts are a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we know that the feasts foreshadow Christ and find fulfillment in him. So how does the feast of Passover and unleavened bread point to Jesus? Well, Jesus was crucified at Passover. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. And just like the Lamb had no blemish, Jesus was perfect and without sin. Hebrews 4.15 and 7.26 and 1 Peter 2.22 and 1 John 3.5. Why do they stress that so much? Why, why are the biblical authors telling us over and over again that Jesus was sinless? Because he's the fulfillment of this lamb. He is the sinless lamb. And like the lamb, his blood delivers us from the wrath of God. Like the lamb, Jesus was sacrificed in our place. He took the punishment for our sins, Isaiah 53, 5, and 12. He is the perfect and final sacrifice, Hebrews 9, 23 to 10, 14. Jesus rescues us from bondage to sin and death. He accomplishes a new and greater exodus, Luke 9, 30. Jesus leads us into the ultimate promised land, which is heaven. He is the fulfillment of all that Moses, the Exodus, the Passover pointed to. Now, just like the Israelites had to show faith by taking blood and putting it on the door, trusting that God was going to 
do what he said and save them. So we too must exercise faith, put our trust in Christ's sacrifice to save us, trusting that God's wrath will fall on him and will not fall on us. The first application is to believe and to be saved. Jesus transforms the Passover into a new feast to mark this substitutionary death. Passover was this sacred meal eaten in the Lord's presence in communion with him. It looked back at God's salvation, giving him thanks and praise. So too, the Lord's Supper is a sacred meal eaten in the Lord's presence that looks back, giving thanks and praise for God's salvation. It supersedes the Passover because the redemption that we have in Christ is far greater. Jesus died to take away the sins of the world. That's what we celebrate now. So application two is to rejoice in God's salvation. And one of the main ways that we do that is through communion. Yes, communion is a time of reflection, but overall, it should be a time of rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, you have been redeemed from sin and death. Why do our eyes glaze over when we go through this? Don't let these truths become old. Rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation. It's the greatest news ever. But we hear it so much and we just sort of, oh, here we go again. We Eeyore. Oh, so glad we're saved. No, rejoice in your salvation, brothers and sisters. Rejoice in the Lord. But there's a a recommitment piece to this as well. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a reminder that their freedom from serving under Pharaoh's rule was exchanged, it was traded for serving under the Lord. He led them out to serve him. During the festival, they were supposed to purge their homes of all leaven. Leaven was a symbol for sin, and so symbolically, sin is removed from their houses. This is a picture of how Jesus cleanses us from all sin and how we're supposed to be holy as God's people. That's how Paul applies this feast to the church in Corinth as it relates to tolerating sin among them. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. He calls them to cleanse out the leaven, the sin, so they might live in a way that reflects who they really are, unleavened, cleansed from sin. So they should be holy and not tolerate sin in their lives or in the church. We're supposed to walk in newness of life, keeping our lives unstained by the world. This, Paul says, this is how you celebrate the festival, quote unquote. It's spiritual now. 
You live without the leaven of sin in your life. So Jesus fulfills this feast of unleavened bread. He is our Passover lamb who cleanses us from sin. And that leads us to application three. Be holy. Be free from the leaven of evil. So what sin needs to be put out of your house? And we were brought out of slavery to sin in order to serve the Lord Jesus. So be holy. The second major feast is the Feast of Weeks. And the application here for us is to rejoice in hope. We'll see this in verses 9 through 12. You can see where it gets its name in verse 9. Look there with me. He says, you shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is put to the standing grain. That's a reference to the barley harvest. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord. Now, this feast had many names. It's also called the Feast of Harvest, Exodus 23, 16. The Day of First Fruits, Exodus 34, 22, Numbers 28, 26. And Pentecost, Leviticus 23, 16, because it happened 50 days after Pentecost, or after Passover. So Pentecost is a reference to those 50 days. And I know all these names are confusing, right? It's like driving around town in Chicagoland, and you're on the same road, you haven't made any turns, and all of a sudden, you're not on the same road. It's like a different name for the same road. It's so confusing. I get it. It's kind of like that. So we have all these names, and this feast, it, it celebrated the provision of God in the grain harvest. That's the why. What's the how? Well, the clock started ticking when the sickle was put to the standing grain, verse 9, and the priest took one sheaf of grain, the first fruits of the harvest, and he raised it up as a wave offering on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, Leviticus 23, 11. Then seven weeks later, there was another wave offering, this time of two loaves of bread, Leviticus 23, 17. So there was a harvest. The, the one sheaf, the first fruits of the harvest, had become many more. Verse 10 says, To bring a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who's within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who's among you. They're commanded to rejoice in God's presence. And everybody, everybody is invited. The feasting and the rejoicing is for everyone. Children, servants, sojourners, orphans, widows. Celebrating God's provision, but not sharing it with others, was unthinkable. Like all feasts, it was a holy convocation. They didn't do any work. It was a Sabbath, Leviticus 23, 21. It was a day for rest and rejoicing and refreshment and worship for all that God had done. Verse 12, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe all these statutes. I think this is here because this is a motivation for them to care for the weak and needy, all these people that are mentioned in the text, but also because there was no opportunity in Egypt to have the freedom to work and enjoy the fruits of their labor. So the feast looked back, remembering God's goodness in both salvation and in his provision, and that led them to grateful and joyful worship. How does this point to Jesus? On Pentecost, the feast of weeks, 
God poured out the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of Joel 2. The context of that prophecy was in a failed harvest that had been destroyed by locusts. Joel 1, 6 through 12. And not only had the food, but also their joy was dried up and cut off. Verse 16. Then the Lord calls his people to return to him with all their heart, to rend their hearts, not their garments. Joel 2, 12 through 13. And God would restore their lost harvest, what was consumed by these locusts, by pouring out abundant rain, Joel 2, 19 through 23. But more than that, he promised that he's going to pour out his spirit on them, Joel 2, 28 through 32. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God calls people to himself in a spiritual harvest. Now, this one sheaf was a first fruit that represented many more to come. And it's so cool. I learned this this week. I'd never seen this before. But this, this one sheaf was raised up and waved before the Lord on the Sunday after Passover. The same day that Jesus was raised up from the dead. A sign of many more sheaves to follow. And so Paul says, Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 to 23. All who are in Christ will be raised to eternal life because Christ was raised and more are coming. And that harvest began in earnest on Pentecost when 3,000 souls were added to their number, to the church that day. Of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this is still future, but Christ is the first fruits and his resurrection gives us hope of resurrection. On Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, God pours out His Spirit, who is the guarantee of your resurrection. Romans 8 says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 10 and 11. And then later in the same chapter, Paul says, all creation groans, we're groaning, we do too. We who have the first fruits of the spirit, we're waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope you were saved. If you don't have the spirit, you have no hope and no life. Jesus is the one whose death and resurrection bears much fruit. Jesus is the first fruits of a harvest of resurrection, and the spirit given is the guarantee of many more to follow. And because we have the same spirit, we know that we too will be raised. If you're in Christ, then rejoice in hope. You will be raised. What a promise for us in a world that's marked by decay as our bodies age and we suffer pain 
and disease. We have this promise of new resurrected bodies. As we face the last enemy, which is death, we have this hope, this unshakable hope of everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. As your body groans in this life, take comfort in the hope of a redeemed body. For in this hope you were saved. Again, don't let this truth become stale like a piece of old crusty bread. Let it be warm and fresh to you. Let it fill you with joy and satisfy you with joy, cheering your heart. Second, this joy is not just for you. This isn't just for you. There's a harvest. And just as rejoicing in God's harvest blessing without sharing it with other people is unthinkable, how can we celebrate God's provision and salvation without sharing it with other people? Remember, you too were once enslaved to sin and condemned, and you have been set free. That is reason enough to pity the lost and to share Christ with them. Jesus invites us to enter into the harvest field to take this good news to the world that the harvest might increase to the glory of God. Third, the Feast of Tabernacles or in-gathering, the application for us is rejoice in God's provision. This is a third major pilgrim feast. It's also called the Feast of In-Gathering, Exodus 23:16. Yes, more names. Verse 13. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you've gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. Now, this is at the end of the year when the wheat and the grapes were processed, not just harvested, but processed and stored for winter, the time of olives and fruit and other produce. It took place on the 15th day of the seventh month, which is Tishri, September, October, Leviticus 23, 34, Numbers 28, 12. And every seven years at this festival, every seven years in the year of release, remember we talked about the year of release last week? Yes? Amen, somebody? Okay, all right. (laughs) Every seven years in the year of release, they were supposed to read the law at this feast, Deuteronomy 31, 10, and 11, and all ages were to be there, men, women, and little ones, so they may learn to fear the Lord and be careful to obey him. Deuteronomy 31, 12, and 13. Now, it's called the Feast of Booths because during the feast, they lived in, you guessed it, what? Booths, yeah. (laughs) This was a reminder that they lived in tents after God brought them out of Egypt, Leviticus 23, 43, and how God had faithfully preserved them through the wilderness, providing for them. They had manna, water, light to guide them. They lacked for nothing. It also reminded them how God brought them into the promised land where they enjoyed his provision. Verse 14, you shall rejoice... Again, it included 
everyone, verse 14. It was held at the central sanctuary, verse 15. Why this feast? Because the Lord your God will bless you and all your produce in the work of your hands so that you'll be altogether joyful. Notice again the stress on joy. Commanded to rejoice. Be altogether joyful, verse 15. Why was this such a joyous feast? Because it was the culmination of all of their farming labors for the year. It was coming at the end of their year. And this was sort of the last hurrah. And it was the most lavish of all of the feasts. So I mentioned that there were sacrifices and offerings at all of these different feasts. The total offering for this one was 71 bulls, 15 rams, 105 lambs, and 8 goats. By far the most lavish of all of them. Sometimes it was just, and oftentimes it was just called the feast. The feast. And with the harvest finished, it was the one with the greatest rest. There was no more work to be done. The Feast of Booze was a joyous celebration of God's provision through the harvest, but also his provision through the wilderness. So after celebrating the feast in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Levites taught the people this, saying uh, to God, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Nehemiah 9, 19 through 21. So this, this joyous feast was a celebration of God's salvation, but it was also a celebration of his provision through the wilderness, whether it was from the manna, the water from the rock, or the pillar of fire to light the way for them, or the spirit to guide them. God's provision of water, light, and spirit are all linked to this feast. How does it point to Jesus? The feast becomes a symbol in the prophets of a great eschatological hope of the nations, In Zechariah 14, which is an apocalyptic passage, the Feast of Tabernacles is associated with the final victory of the Lord over the nations. And there's this enduring light and living water that flows from Jerusalem, Zechariah 14, 6 through 8. And then the converted remnant from the nations come and worship the king and keep the Feast of Booths, verse 16. But remember, this is not... Literal. This is apocalyptic language. It is highly symbolic. The Feast of Booths is being used here as the symbol because this was the time of ingathering, of grateful rejoicing, the last and most lavish feast of the year. So Zechariah is using it to picture the ingathering of the nations in a final, joyful, climactic feast. And the nature of the kingdom will be holiness. Everyone and everything in it is going to be holy. Zechariah 14, 20 to 21. Now fast forward to Jesus' day. Jesus is teaching in the temple during the Feast of Booths. And on the final day of the feast, the last and the greatest day... Jesus declares, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow streams 
of living water, John 7, 37 to 38. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus in the New Testament is the rock from which the living water flows, John 4, 10. The same day at the feast, Jesus also declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, John 8, 12. We also know that Jesus is the bread of life. What's he saying here? Jesus fulfills the feast of the tabernacles. He is God's provision of manna and water and light and spirit, the spirit. He provides for our deepest needs, forgiveness of sins and peace with God. He is the true source of life. We dwell in fragile tents, our earthly bodies, Yet we have a permanent home waiting for us in heaven, 2 Corinthians 5, 1. Just as the Israelites wandered through the wilderness after they were saved, but before they entered into the promised land, we are sojourners here as God leads us home to heaven, and God is going to preserve us through the wilderness of this world as well. Just as the Feast of Booths celebrated this ingathering of the final harvest with a great feast that followed... When Jesus returns, there will be another ingathering, a great harvest. The wicked will be destroyed and the righteous in Christ will be gathered into God's kingdom. Matthew 13, 36 to 43. And everyone and everything in the kingdom will be holy and there will be the greatest feast of all, the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Jesus is still inviting those who are thirsty to come and take the water of life without price. For those who believe, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, poured out as a river of life-giving, faith-sustaining, truth-teaching, fruit-bearing water. And Jesus is still the light for the nations. All who believe will find the light of life. All of these feasts celebrate God's provision and salvation. They were days of rest and worship in God's presence. But we celebrate a greater provision and salvation. We have a a better rest. We know a closer fellowship with the Lord in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of these feasts. The Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day is the feast that we celebrate. We have a superior reason to worship and a superior joy in Christ. So what can we learn about God's worship from this passage? Worship needs to be conducted on God's terms. Worship involves rest and rejoicing in the Lord. Worship on the Lord's day is communal. It's all God's people, all ages together. Worship strengthens and reaffirms our faith. Worship disciples the next generation. Worship involves offerings to God. No one was supposed to appear empty-handed, verses 16 and 17. Joyful offerings accompanying their worship, our worship just like theirs. We offer both our resources, but ultimately our very lives are offered to God as a living sacrifice to Him. Holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship, Romans 12, 1. 
Worship is driven by a deep sense of gratitude and marked by a great joy. These were the hallmarks of the feast. If you're ho-hum about worship, something is not right. God wants your joy. He does. And so he does something wonderful because he knows that you can only find your joy in him. He commands us to rejoice in him. Again, not that you can't come to God with a heavy heart. God welcomes that and he comforts us in hardship, just like he did for Israel through the wilderness. But the gathering of God's people is a time of celebration, of joyful worship. You have so many reasons to rejoice. Your redemption from sin, the promise of every provision from God for you as you make your way through this wilderness on your way to the promised land. The sure hope of resurrection and eternal life in heaven to follow. Brothers and sisters, these are not pipe dreams. (laughs) These are realities. This is real. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Be altogether joyful in worship because of God's provision and God's salvation. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for all that you have done in Christ. It's overwhelming. God, we confess to you that our hearts are often ho-hum about worship. That we often glaze over when we hear the greatest truths of our faith looking for some practical application when the practical application is staring us in the face to rejoice and to worship you for all that you have done. Would you forgive us for that, God? Forgive us. Would you help us to see? Help us to be awed by what you've done. And God, I just pray that it would move us to worship you with all our hearts. We give our lives to you in service and worship because you're worthy. I pray, God, that you'd fill us with hope as we look at these truths. Lord, we ask this and we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen.